volunteer, please keep that passage open as uh, we begin to explore it more closely. And forgive me if I'm a little bit sort of bleary-eyed this morning. Um, Lois was up at 1.30 till the sparrows got up at about half four. <laughs> so I'm a bit sort of, of all days, but I'll try my best for you. Um, we're in the book of Acts today. Um, I, I do like the book of Acts for a number of reasons. Um, but this particular passage is kind of an obscure one because I can't ever remember being taught this particular passage in Sunday school. Now, we're all quite familiar with the story that went before it, which is the ascension and Jesus rising up into heaven. That's quite a glamorous passage. And we're quite familiar with the passage that's going to come after it, which is Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down and filled the church with power. That's another glamorous passage. But this passage in the middle is not something that I recall from my childhood. Nevertheless, despite this, this passage reveals a lot to us about how the early church operated um, in its infancy. It tells us a lot about how the church operated before it was injected with that power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's a passage that shows us that Jesus' ministry continued despite Jesus being taken up into the clouds. And it's also a passage about how Judas's ministry continued despite his betrayal. And crucially, it demonstrates to us how the early church believed in the scriptures, how it sought God's will in its decision-making, even if the mechanism that it used was something akin to flicking a coin. So hopefully by their example way back then, we may have something this morning that we can take home to encourage us in our own personal faiths, but also something that we can be encouraged by, something that will help us in our corporate faith as a church today without a vicar and in interregnum. So before I begin, let me pray. Father God, may only your words reach our ears. May only your words dwell upon our hearts and our minds. May you be with us now as we uh, study your scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me start with a riddle. And please, no shouting out if you think you know the answer, because the teacher in me will come out. As well. um, there was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scottish man. And they all stood in front of a house. And each one of them said, That house is mine. And each one of them was true. How could that be so? Let me say it again. There's an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scottish man. And they all stood in front of a house. And each one of them said, that house is mine, and each one of them was true. How could that be so? Well, the first man was the architect, the Englishman. He designed and built the house. So in one sense, it's true. That house was his. The second man, the Irishman, he was the 
own of the house. He bought it. And so in that sense, that house was his. And the third man, the Scottish man, he was the tenant. He lived in it. And it was his house also. It was true. Why do I tell you this riddle? Because I think in some ways it helps us to understand one of the great mysteries of our faith. And that mystery is what we call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct characters, all of one and the same being. You see, if we use that analogy and place it in relation to the church, it's quite revealing. The house which the three stand in front of is the church. And the Englishman is God the Father. God the Father designed it. It was God's idea. He planned it and he built it even before the dawn of time. The church is his. The Irish man stands for Jesus. And through Jesus' precious blood, he bought that house. He purchased it. He paid the debt, that mortgage of our sin, which separates us from God. The church, we belong to him. We are his house at a great cost. And the third man, the Scottish man, he represents the Holy Spirit. He lives in the house. He lives in the church, in you and in I. And he continues that work of God the Father. And he continues that work of God the Son, bearing witness to the resurrection and the saving works of Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament could be described as the work and the ministry of the Father. And as we move forwards, we get into the Gospels. And the whole of the Gospels is about the work and ministry of Jesus. And then we move into Acts. And the book of Acts, God the Father's ministry and Jesus' ministry doesn't stop. It continues. It continues in that power that Jesus promised through the third member of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts is really important as we see God's plan, his ministry and his redemption history being rolled out through the church. And the author, Luke, states in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, to uh, the recipient who's Theophilus, he says that he wants to create an orderly account of all that happened when Jesus was here on earth. And so in the same spirit, he wants to write an orderly account of all the events that happened after Jesus was taken up into the sky at the ascension. So in some senses, we have an historical piece of writing here. But we also have a first-hand testimony. Because if you continue to read through the book of Acts, you'll notice that its tense changes. It goes from third person to first person quite often. And that tells us that Luke himself was a witness of much of what went on. The passage we heard read today starts with the apostles returning from Jerusalem 
as Jesus told them to do. And they were to return and they were to wait for the helper that was to come, namely the Holy Spirit in the passage that follows. Now prior to the ascension, um, where Jesus was taken up into the clouds, Jesus had actually spent 40 days with his followers, 40 days with the apostles and others in what was a theological boot camp, probably the greatest Bible study on earth, where Jesus explained all the scriptures to them. Imagine what a Bible study that must have been, one led by Jesus himself, one where I suspect he pointed out all the places in the Old Testament that referred to him. And I can't think of any better foundation, can, can you, for, for the early church or indeed any Christian to be taught by him who divinely inspired and wrote the Bible in the first place. So they sat there and they're waiting in the upper room as they've been told to do. And it's tempting to think that they might have gone into some sort of paralysis. But they didn't. There was business to be done. Now, the main protagonist in this passage is Peter. And Peter is a transformed and changed man. In the Gospels, we often find Peter being that over-enthusiastic disciple, the one that always seems to put his foot in his mouth at the wrong time and a little too often. He renounces Christ in those final hours before the crucifixion. And at the resurrection, Christ restores him with these words. He says, Peter, you are going to be the rock on which I build my church. And we see in verse 15, this is proven so. Peter steps up to the plate and begins to lead. It is probably his first act of leadership. And what a contrast in character we have between the early Peter we saw in the Gospel and the one we see now. And if we continue to read in Acts, the one that we will see, Peter is a changed man. So he begins by reminding all those that were assembled, and Luke's quite specific about it. He says it's about 120 people in total, that Scripture must be fulfilled. Scripture must be fulfilled. And he says it wasn't, it wasn't unforeseen that Jesus would betray Jesus. It was spoken about long ago and it was recorded. I'm sure Jesus revealed this to them uh, in that 40 days of Bible study that they'd just been through. And Peter signposts them to Psalm 69 that speaks of the notoriety of the place where G Judas hung himself. But he also quotes Psalm 109, where it says, may another take his place. Now, I've probably been in far too many PCC meetings in my life, certainly far too many PCC meetings of late. They can be quite long-winded and, sad to say, quite boring. In my opinion, there's far too many necessary items on the agenda, time-consuming business to be done. But there's one statutory item 
on all PCC agendas uh, that can in itself gob gobble up all the time we put in on all the other items, and that's the dreaded A, O, B. Any other business. It's cruel. It's always there at the end of the meeting, right at the end, just as you've got your car keys in your hand and you're waiting for that final prayer. AOB arrives and there's an item on the agenda and you see home time slipping away. <laughs> the dreaded AOB. In, today, in today's passage, this election of office, this continuation of Judas's ministry, it seems to me like it's the first AOB of the church ever recorded in history. Any other business, yes, we must appoint in Judas's place. I'm being playful. I don't mean to be flippant about the PCC. I'm a battle-scarred PCC veteran, <laughs> after all. Um, and after all, Peter says this, Scripture must be fulfilled. And I can't think of any worthy an item on any agenda to see that so. And so whilst the temptation may have been to sit in that room and wait in Jerusalem as Jesus had asked them to do, the early church was not going to be idle. Their job was soon in hand for the church to bear witness to the resurrection, verse 22. And scripture must be fulfilled and another must take his place. So two people are nominated, Barsabas and Matthias. And I suspect these two names came about after much lengthy discussion and dialogue. Both men had been with the other 11 since uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Both men had seen uh, Christ after, after he'd ra raised from the dead. So how do you decide when you're faced with such an even match? Well, you could continue talking and debating, but I suspect much of that had already been done. You could dig your heels in for your favourite accepting no compromise and probably fall eventually into petty factionalism and falling out. Or you could, as the church did, resort to an ancient custom, tradition or practice, a practice often used in such uh, difficult decisions and circumstances, namely the drawing of lots. Now, not a lot is known about lots, some say it's, there were coloured stones that were added into sort of like a vessel and that's how you would pull a stone out and that's how a decision would be made. Others say it was sort of polished lengths of stick. We, we don't particularly know how it, how it happened. Um, in the Old Testament, there are numerous occasions where lots are cited when important decisions uh, were needed to be made. Uh, and so they used lots to decide the outcome. For example, when the Israelites came into the promised land, uh, the land had to be divided up amongst the tribes, and it was lots that was used. It was an impartial practice that would stop arguments and contentions between people, and no doubt could prevent them from occurring in the first place. All would agree to honour the outcome 
before the lot was drawn. The book of Proverbs states this in uh, chapter 18, verse 18. Casting of lots causes contention to cease and keeps the mighty apart. Proverbs 16, verses 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And this is the crucial thing about lots and the decision that the disciples uh, or the apostles were making here. They wanted to know what God's will was. They trusted in his providence that only what would come about would be as a result of God's plan. So rather than putting their decision into some great game of chance like flipping a coin, they collectively agreed to trust in God's sovereignty, the fact that he is in control. It was a collective act of faith that they all agreed to abide by the outcome. Now, trying to know God's will is a tricky business. The early church weren't as fortunate as us. Uh, They hadn't yet received the full testimony of Scripture like we have in our laps this morning. Nor had they received that intimate sort of witness of God's will, which is the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's interesting to note that this is the last instance of its kind where we read in the Bible that lots uh, have been used to make a decision. It doesn't seem to be a tool for making decisions used again. And I suspect that's probably because the Holy Spirit was about to descend shortly and visions and tongues and prophecy were going to supersede it as a mechanism to know the will of God. So an application, here's a big question. Is it wrong to practice lots today? In this day and age when we have the Holy Spirit and we have the full testimony of Scripture in our hands. Have you heard about the one, about the man that wanted to know the will of God in a particular life crisis or drama? He wanted to know the will of God, so he flicked open his Bible and his eyes fell randomly onto a verse and it said, Judas went out and hanged himself (laughs) and he gulped. Surely not, Lord, this is not what you want to say to me. So he closed the Bible and he opened it again and his eyes fell again randomly on a verse and the verse said, go thou and do likewise. (laughs) It'd be rather... Naive, wouldn't it, and ridiculous if we were to spend our life trying to discern God's will by that sort of random game of chance. It would. Um, I think that there's some there's some worth sometimes, you know, allowing God to work in that way where we just open our Bibles and we see what God has to show us. But we've got to be wise and we've got to be discerning, unlike the fellow that I've just mentioned. The New Testament asks us uh, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to be transformed in the renewal of our minds that we may be able to prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. 
And again in Ephesians 5, we're told that we should strive to know what the will of the Lord is. And yet I think lots do have a place in exceptional circumstances and can be used when faced with decisions where there's no real way of deciding one way or another what God's will is. Lots will, however, always be the exception rather than the rule in church life and decision-making. A PCC member uh, light-heartedly quipped to me in, in one of our recent meetings that we should draw lots to decide our next vicar. He said, after all, it's biblical smirking. <laughs> Couldn't argue with that. Um, but rest assured, the PCC won't be doing that. We won't be uh, resorting to lots to decide who our next vicar will be. But we can, as a church and as a PCC, and what I believe we have been doing as a church and as a PCC is not become idle during this interregnum. Like the early church, we haven't suffered from paralysis because we're vicarless. Junior church goes on. Mission and outreach, it goes on. Men's ministry and women's ministry, it continues. Just to name but a few aspects of our church life and fellowship. And this is a wonderful testimony uh, for us here at St. Stephen's. These are all expressions of our faith. You see, this church, this ship, isn't adrift heading for rocks because we lack a pilot as such to steer it. We are and we continue to be a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, Bible-living people with much in common with the early church. Led now and I hope in the future, not so much by one person, namely a vicar, but first and foremost, always by the Spirit of God and the words of Scripture. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the things that you have to teach us in it. We thank you for the example of Peter, who was a changed man, restored and redeemed, a man called, like we are called, to serve and to fulfill your purpose. We thank you for the example of the early church who sought your will. And we pray as uh, a church today that we would always seek first your will, to look towards your kingdom. Lord, strengthen us in our knowledge of you, in our desire to know you more, so that we may strive to know your will. Bless the PCC. Inspire those and anoint those appointed uh, in the decision-making process uh, for our new vicar. And we continue to bless this congregation of saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.